You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. Downtown New York City, the center of subculture, the coordinates of cool. It's a locale rich with legend and lore where art, fashion, and music intersect on every corner, each with its own historic heroes and anti-heroes. It's a place that still captures the imagination of young people across the globe, but its mean streets have kept their edge. Follow your dreams too far, and that edge can draw blood. In eras past, downtown's edge came from the proximity of high and low. Wall Street stockbrokers socialized with penniless artists, hip-hoppers and punk rockers shared inspiration, and graffiti was displayed in the galleries. Larry Clark's film Kids carried the dream of downtown into the 90s, and then streetwear brand Supreme broadcasted across the globe into the new millennium. Today, though, you won't find any bohemians downtown, at least not any poor ones. The kinds of people that were once the lifeblood of the area have been all but priced out. Perhaps those who remained felt obligated out of reverence to uphold an irreverent legacy of transgression and taboo. Or perhaps they saw opportunity in a time when new taboos of language and politics were flooding into the mainstream. Either way, the soul of downtown, the power of its myths, was up for grabs to whoever had the money and media savvy to take it. From the West Coast came radical libertarians, shadowy tech founders, and unorthodox ideologues with venture capital firms. And downtown New York has again become an incubator of counterculture. Only this counterculture looks and thinks nothing like those of its past. Something is happening in downtown New York, something new, with implications we are only beginning to understand. In this episode, New Models speaks with David Yoakum, Chloe Waif Material, and Madeline Cash of Forever Magazine about one week in downtown New York City, a week that begins with the premiere of Angelicism's film 01, and beyond the banter, gossip, and arrival of a fiery omen, a shape is starting to take form. Lights, camera, scene, let's get into it. New Model Special Report. We often check in with David to find out what's going on in New York's hybrid online offline scene because New York uniquely has sort of developed this hybrid scene that like was internet first then de-virtualized into New York then got like its own gossip columnist and its own sort of broadcasting ecosystem maybe like a decentralized autonomous reality show or something (laughs) right Uh, and it seems like every May June there's a cluster of things that happens around the scene it de-virtualizes in some profound way I guess there's the angelicism film screening there's the praxis Gala, was week, it? They, had a a gala? Whole, they made up a practice week last week. They were like, we're doing practice okay. week. They've had events every day. Milady's rave. And they did. They had a banquet. A banquet, not a gala. And the Milady thing is a part of practice week. Ah. Uh-huh. Okay, so, and also it happens to be this bizarre week where New York has been under a total cloud of smoke. So it's kind yeah. of like New York Hell Week or something. First, maybe we could do introductions. So who's there? So David? Yeah, it's David. I'm Chloe Wave Material. That's her last name. That, <laughs> I'm Madeline Cash. 
Forever Magazine, Madeline. Yeah, Cash. I co-edit Forever Magazine and... As a beloved and well-adored uh, writer. The author of Earth Angels, which is this really great fiction book that just dropped this spring. So congrats on that. Thank you. Thank you for reading it. <laughs> Thanks for sending it. And Chloe, you're in the film, right? Yes. Yes, I am. Is that supposed to be secret? It's, it's not, a secret to her. <laughs> it was a secret. It was entirely a secret to me. There's segments of like old videos I sent angelicism of like me playing piano used as part of the soundtrack. There's videos of me lounging. In this apartment. In this apartment during some of the epileptic episodes where it's just like images like rapidly flashing on screen there are like images of me in there a couple times like stuff from my instagram which was all shocking to me no one told me that beforehand so a surprise i wonder if just as a framing shot so some people listening are going to be super familiar with everything that's been said but others they don't even know who angelicism is i mean what is it angelicism is an is a angelicism is an it yeah it's an it it's an it they i think it kind of like made the thing that like was the the vibe shift of two years ago right and it kind of changed posting forever i think that you know say what you will about angelicism it's like angelicism and donald trump are the two really good posters so like very most influential posters that I'm aware of. I don't know. He like writes in this very like esoteric post, post, post everything style. And angelicism is a substacking like cultural critic, but also gossip poster, egregore. Yeah. Like not one person. But also I think angelicism was a defining, establishing figure in this sort of Network, spirituality, lane pill, yeah. hyper intellectual, philosophical posting, and a very particular aesthetic pack or a vibe, so to speak, that ended up essentially spawning a sort of internet cult phenomenon in a way that felt very oppositional to the formalized, very clear, correct, very careful posting style that had emerged in response to Trump. Cancel culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To just sketch out a super big theory here. As large language models have essentially like conquered language, and of course media creation, like very professional looking images, angelicism was very early at sort of representing a return to the like ineffable or the magical or the incoherent as sort illegible. Of the, the machine illegible. Right. To put it in like Federico Campagna terms, who wrote Technic and Magic, and my understanding is the idea once we get so far into Technic and language as being like the defining, I don't know, ontology of society or something, we'll come out the other end into magic again. And Angelicism was an important force in that return to the illegible, ineffable, magical. And so Film 01 was a project Angelicism has, I think, been working on for the past two years or so out of uh, collected footage and imagery from the internet. And also people who found their way to the Angelicism expanded universe, like you, Chloe, I guess, also ended up being in the film. And the first screening of the film happened earlier this week in New York City. And of course, it was a social event because right. it's New York City. <laughs> That was incredible, Jillian. That was, <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that was incredible. <laughs> so as this film was screened this week, there was a lot of like paratext around it or layers circulating around the screening. Can you relate to us an impression of how the film arrived in New York or what it meant to the scene or what did it signify? I was 
quite shocked by the crowd personally. I didn't really know who to expect to see at this kind of thing. Because when I bring up angelicism or when I see other people talk about angelicism, it's a very polarized like response. Either people are just so obsessed and so on board and they'll completely adopt these aesthetic traits and stuff, or they're just like, they despise what angelicism does, what it stands for. And then angelicism itself also really craves conflict in some ways, I think, because like if you openly dislike angelicism, it will attack you like (laughs) over the internet. I mean, sometimes different things. Yeah. Sometimes they, as a minions that will send to other discords and And, post horrible stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Also to say that, Everyone was there. Like, understand there's under a hundred people. There was under a hundred people. <laughs> so, like, I guess I just knew every single one. So yeah, like, that's, everyone's here. But I, <laughs> I did know every single it was shocking to me, yeah. actually. Yeah. But was, that's part of the like lore building that this entity does is like tapping into the narcissism of a downtown scene by like featuring them. Yeah. No one would have exactly. cared about this film had they not been in it or like looking for yeah. themselves. I mean is longer than Gone with the Wind. And that's the longest movie I've ever seen. It's literally three hours long. Yeah. Yeah, it's very similar to like other sub stacks in New York who chronicle events, basically. It did feel a lot like people waiting through this intensely long movie to see themselves again. Hmm. Just like to set like a scene. Like I sat directly behind Milady Sonora Sprite of Romelia. The artist behind Milady. Yeah. Yeah. Charlotte Fang... Of Romelia, of Charlie, course. Charlotte Fang. And Dasha Nekrasova. And Dasha would point at the screen and clap every time she came like, <laughs> on screen. <laughs> and a big feud arose. So, like, there's been an off-again, on-again relationship between Romelia and Angelicism. They've hated each other and then loved each other yeah. and then hated each other. Yeah. In the film, there was a eight- or nine-minute Romelia, like entirely Romelia produced segment, which was completely removed without explanation. Interesting. All of these like people from Romelia were sitting directly in front of me expecting this to be in the film. And the fact that it was left out made them incredibly upset. And it's led to this new falling out between Angelicism as an entity and Romelia as a group. Yeah. Which, again, like, people were mad when they didn't get to point at the screen and say, I'm there, you know? Like, that was what it felt like so many people were looking for. Just scanning a gossip substack to see if their name's there. Looking at, like, the Cobra Snake website to see if their photo got posted. Mm. It was, like, that kind of feel. Oh, that's... I never never thought of this as being, like, the party photography of the 20s. That's so interesting. Instead of, like, taking photographs, you're actually, like, culling, like, web channels for people's traces and then distilling those. I mean, even, I don't know if you think of Mike Crumplar's substack, right? I mean, he's a gossip columnist, essentially. Or that's the format within which he ultimately works. And even if he writes something bad about them, people are very excited to be... Noticed. uh, Yeah. It's like when you get your... If you were at a blog house party in 2010 and you were blackout drunk, but a photo of you ended up on Cobra Snake, I'd... You were still like... You were probably... (laughs) I don't know. I think you would still be flattered or something. That's never happened to me, but... (laughs) (laughs) 
and that's not to say like that's entirely what the film was about. Mm-hmm. It had like more going on, of course. A big thing like in the film was this idea of like extinction and we're at this tipping point, you know. Yeah, that's this whole thing. I love you one last time. Yeah. But I was speaking on how I felt most of the crowd was approaching it, which I observed immediately in front of me. Yeah. And where was the event? What was the venue? It was like this film the film anthology theater. Yeah. Oh, okay. On second half. Amazing, which actually tracks in terms of like experimental film or like East Village film. That kind of tracks. That's a great home for it. What has played there in the past that has been... Oh, Anthology? Yeah. Anthology is in a really amazing place because when all of the structuralist filmmakers and experimental filmmakers in the 70s who had like porta packs and were just like putting their cameras on cables and swinging them or Paul Sherritt's cutting up film, you know. Cinema of transgression. Cinema of transgression. Nick said, Richard Kern, all of this was given a de facto home by anthology film centers and they fundraise to make backup copies, like on film backup copies of all of this film film that at the time was not legible to institutions. So like before MoMA or someone would go and collect this film, Anthology was like, this is amazing. You know, Anthology film archives, they literally have storage in cans, clean prints of all of these amazing right. films. And they also have put funds towards restoring films that didn't have a proper backup. So it's really an amazing place. And they've been, I mean, I don't know the politics of it in recent years. I haven't lived in New York in almost 10 years, but I know that they also were really open to interesting curators or filmmakers who would do special programs and the quality would vary, but you get really amazing stuff and really weird stuff. So it's kind of a boon that Angelicism got to show the film at Anthology, if you ask me. Yeah, definitely. I wonder if they are going to keep it in the archive. Do you know? I mean, like, it's not going to stream. So, like, where does Film 01 go next? The entire, like, production of this film was so secretive. Even the location was just, like, kept under wraps until, like, about an hour or two before the film premiered. Mm. We arrive, we watch this insane three-hour film that I just didn't know what to expect at all, and now I have no idea where it goes. It's it's just... Mm. Do you think it was emotionally effective, though? I mean, angelicism sort of, it's all from this perspective of imminent extinction, which is, yeah. to be honest, 50-50 at this point, the way <laughs> we're living. So I don't think extinction happens quickly or in any sort of romantic way, and I don't think we'll see it in our lifetime, but it is written from that perspective. And it's not a crazy perspective to have that humanity is imminently going to be extinct and seeing the internet as uploading every aspect we possibly can of all the things that are beautiful in humanity as the last record. But I wonder if to you as a viewer or the vibe in general, what the emotional tenor actually Mm. ended up being from watching the film after watching it. I would say, like, I was incredibly moved by it, if I'm going to be quite honest. It was so intense that I had to, like, take an extended smoke break partway through just to, like, breathe. Because the way the film was presented was so nonstop, so at times abrasive, both visually and, like, sonically, that you didn't get the choice to look away or to close your eyes. Even when you closed your eyes, there's these sounds and voices and these colors, like, flashing rapidly. Like, it was just inescapable unless you literally left the room. And 
when I did leave for my like little smoke break, there was this group of about three or four young people downtown New York, maybe Brooklyn. (laughs) And they were quite literally just talking about how offended they were at the film, choosing to stand in the lobby where anyone could hear them and talk angrily about how offensive this was. I went on Instagram Reels, and as I was scrolling, hearing the audio from my Instagram Reels, and also hearing people walking by and talking in different languages about different things, I became a bit frightened because I realized that it felt as though I was still watching the film. I couldn't, like, escape it at this point. I got quite scared multiple times in the film. There's this one point in which it, like, presents just this image of a YouTube thumbnail. I don't remember the exact title, but it was something along the lines of white screen for 24 hours, which I got a bit scared by what that might mean. (laughs) By the time we did get to the end, it felt like a collective breathing out. It was quite cool, actually, if you ask me. <laughs> I know that the part of the whole Angelicism project is taking into account not only that, like, you're going to die as an individual, but that we're, like, potentially all going to die collectively. It's, like, this mm. sort of apocalyptic feeling. And there's something really, I guess, in the early, like, wet brain discord, Angelicism posted a lot. And I, I learned, he's, like, actually, like, a very serious practitioner of Vajrayana Buddhism, like, Tibetan Buddhism, like, the magic Buddhism. <laughs> Which, when I learned that, it made him make so much more sense to me. Mm. Like, he has, like, a Tibetan teacher Mm. and practices very, very seriously. And it's like, when you are doing that kind of intense meditative practice, and that lineage in particular, it makes sense of why he comes from this, like, absolute perspective. I think it's, like, a, a part of it that I haven't heard anybody talk about before. That really does track. I mean, I remember during the Trump time and before we'd found discords to speak in a different way, it felt like we needed some kind of wrathful deity in the feeds, like some kind of Mahakala figure to just clear the energy out, right? And so I can sympathize is probably the wrong word, but I can understand that impulse, right? Yeah. That's an interesting fact. To me, it feels like he's like purposely playing that role. It feels that way. He has his skull cap and whatever, (laughs) I forget what the the attribute is. Exactly, exactly in his hand. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to bring us all the pure lands. That's what he's going for, right? Yeah. (laughs) I kind of do think so. I don't know if it's good or... The thing with all that stuff, particularly in those communities, because I've been close to those communities, it's like, I don't know if I ever really want to be close to the master. Right. Back to the idea of film. I mean, the question of like, what is film? What's not film is of course something that's always changing. But it was interesting, Chloe, listening to you say that you felt like you were looking at your Instagram reels or whatever, and you felt like you were still sort of in the film. Is film the right container, the right category for this? Or do you feel that it sort of opens up some other medium, some medium that's like blended with the kind of screen space, social media continuum? Or do you think film has expanded to include that? Because, you know, when you're on your phone, you have agency. You can switch to a different account, you can switch apps or whatever. But when you're in a theater, you're just subjected to this. As you said, if you closed your eyes, you were still in it, right? So would you categorize it as film or how would you speak of what this media was that you were in? I suppose it's funny that it is just called Film 01, Uh if this is the conversation, because it kept feeling like we were taking this in in the wrong way. Like we were consuming this film incorrectly. I think that probably has everything to do with the way it did feel like I was scrolling a feed, Mm. except like 
any agency was stripped from me. I was forced to sit silently in the theater and respect these like social obligations and pretend like it was an entirely normal thing to watch in this sort of setting, which it didn't feel at all. And, yeah, it was yeah. a bit of a hostage situation. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I was thinking was like, this would maybe be more pleasing to me in a well-lit room and we could talk and walk up to it and walk away from it. But this isn't to say that I didn't enjoy it mm -hmm. or that I found it unbearable or that if I had to like letterbox review it, this wouldn't take a star off or mm -hmm. something. It's just something I observed in myself while watching it, which I have no choice but to believe was part of the point, uh -huh. really. Maybe I've just used too much TikTok at this point in my life and <laughs> too much instant gratifications entered my life. <laughs> I mean, it would be a different experience if we're in a gallery, like yeah. you said, well lit. But yeah, I mean, it was a movie. It, it was, was a movie. movie. It was a film. For deeper insights into the film, everyone read Madeline Cash's review of it in spikeartmagazine.com. What happened after the film? Oh, Where right. did you go? What were the discussions? Right. What was the reaction? Were the stars of the film feeling gassed up? What was the social <laughs> scene? A lot of people did immediately head out and did not stay for the short reception afterwards. There were a lot of events. It was this Monday night. There was also this party happening, a Mandate Heaven party. It was part of the Praxis Week thing. Yeah, like, because it, it, it is like Praxis Week. There were many events, which I'm sure people... <laughs> it is Praxis Week. ...wanted to go to. <laughs> but at the reception, basically everyone I spoke to in general, when asked, what did you think or how do you feel about it, all anyone could really say was, I don't know. <laughs> and... I even felt that way myself. Not I don't know as in not good or bad. People were genuinely unsure what to say about what they just saw. At times I thought of it as almost like a schizophrenia inducing film. It did feel like I was being driven crazy at some points. And I'm sure other people very much felt the same way. It was a lot to take in. Yeah. And there were a lot of thoughts to gather because so much information was presented so densely all at once. You went to the Mandate Heaven party though, didn't you? Yeah, I did after the reception go to the Mandate Heaven party. <laughs> so <laughs> Which, funny. Does anyone want to give a really brief definition of Praxis or ID for Praxis? Or like, what is Praxis and why do they have a week? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. They decided it like four days before, but... <laughs> Praxis is a group of individuals that have gathered a lot of capital through literally Peter Thiel and other venture capital. Yeah. What they're using the capital for is buying up a ton of New York City real estate, and they're going to like trade that real estate with a country to make their own sovereign city-state. And they're looking at uh, Montenegro, I think. But yeah, sovereign nation almost feels like a technicality. There's like this libertarian desire to like set your own tax code, basically. Special economic zone is maybe the best analogy. And I think there's several actually right. that are attempting to set something up in Montenegro. Like I think Vitalik funded something or at least there was yeah, some kind of... Well, there literally is one in Montenegro. Right. And there are these countries that have some appealing assets like Mediterranean coastline, but don't really have anything else going for them in their GDP that are open to this, right? Thinking yeah. that this influx of capital will have a glow-up effect to the rest of their nation. Yeah. And so Praxis, though, is particularly NYC-centric, it seems. Yeah, it is. And it's people in their 20s and 30s, right? It's younger people yes. who are tech-adjacent. Yeah. I mean, for all intents and purposes, 
Praxis is a loft in Soho that throws parties. <laughs> That's mostly okay. what they do, but um, <laughs> come on. <laughs> and I mean, these crypto cities and like autonomous zones are either like a result of climate fear or a fear of poor people, I guess, or like trying to have a caste system. And this sort of goes back to the angelicism ideology of the fear of extinction, like the tech oligarch having a bunker in their basement. Everyone's just trying to grapple with climate change, maybe, like in their own like weird schizo ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's exit versus voice. I kind of go for it, Praxis. It's like they're like doing some crazy, you crazy, crazy You know it's thing. like a little darker than that, though. Like you've seen their bookshelves. I know. But, but I'm really always curious about Praxis. I would think the first thing you need to talk about is who's building the sewer system? Like who's going to do all the boring shit? Right. So like when building these cities, that's why there's like an inherent class divide because there has to be the people that build the city and then the people that get to live in the city that are like, I don't know what their like survival of the fittest tactics is, but like you have to apply to go to the mm -hmm. city. You have to have something to offer. And I assume that the people making it are not going to be the same as the people who gained access through application. So I don't know. They're they're not going to do it better than we've been doing it. I don't know. They they've had a whole week and I, and I failed to go to every. I, I, they had a whole so, week and I failed to go to every single. Event. Well, let me frame it in a different way. Maybe that'll help seed uh, the conversation about this week. Praxis. They're examining this idea of starting a sovereign or autonomous city-state where they can design the social and governmental structure from the ground up, somewhat collectively trying to apply the cutting edge of thought and economics to a truly new city for the 21st century, right? And a way they're trying to attract talent, all of the Atlas Shrugged minds that will make the city successful. And the people who eventually will live in the city is they have a cultural program. They are essentially nurturing a scene to try to attract people to Praxis. So I assume Praxis Week was really, it was almost like Rush Week for a <laughs> sorority or frat or something, right? Honestly, yeah, I would say yes. Like, Urbit had a week. Fashion has a week, you know? Right. <laughs> Praxis has a week. Like, Praxis hired Daxon to be there throwing their parties. Mm. He's good at it. He's good at it. He's quite good at that. Yeah. <laughs> Daxon's the coolest kid on Between the Coasts. Mm -hmm. And they, like, got him on board. I think Caitlin Phillips was doing their... Yeah, literally, is that <laughs> really true? Caitlin Phillips is doing the PR. <laughs> it's like, it literally is a litany of like downtown cool kids that are part of this thing. It's kind of fun. I kind of mm. like all those people. It's, Maybe I would live in the city with them. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I on Praxis. If they build a city, I'll go. I will probably go. I don't know who will build the sewers. I don't know who will do the military. I don't know. I don't know any of that kind of stuff. But I think there is something correct. The world is fucking changing. Like I can't imagine being an old person and it's just like a slow progression of liberal democracy, mm -hmm. the West Western dominance or whatever. It's like the, the, the chances of that seem like almost nothing to me personally. So it's like, <laughs> why not? Either I move to China or I move to Praxis. I'd rather move to Praxis. <laughs> I don't know. It does take up a really interesting place. It's like similar to like the place that like Urbit was taking up in the city last summer, mm. I guess. Mm -hmm. It feels like this year is more the Praxis year versus the Urbit year, at least in the downtown New York cultural sense. If, I don't know. If I can talk about something else that happened after the film and almost kind of like concurrently with it and with Praxis Week, of course, is the fact that immediately after the film ended, a thick, toxic oh, yeah, that is cloud very good point. 
rolled over New York City the morning after this film. The morning after. Yeah, he did bring in the extinction event. It it happened. These fires were burning as the film was 150 fires were somehow simultaneously lit in Quebec. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the biggest- At the same time, probably, that the film was screening. (laughs) The event that, like, really set the mood for both Praxis Week and feelings on the film was something completely out of our control. And it was something that made both of these- Things feel even more pressing and defending that word correctly. I cannot like apocalyptic wasteland. It was a very strange mood because, like, usually when people talk about climate change, there's like three camps you fall into, which is like being kind of like a freak about it, really, and letting it ruin your life, or just pretending it doesn't exist, or accepting it for what it is and living your life regardless and being like, well, yeah, whatever. All three camps were talking about the apocalypse mm. on Wednesday. Mm. Yeah, all it felt three, like we're in apocalypse. No right? one was denying the material reality of the situation. Anti-maskers were masking. Climate <laughs> deniers were posting online about how it looks like Arrakis outside. But no one seemed terrified or freaking out. We all just seemed to kind of accept that this is what was happening and go to praxis parties anyways in this thick cloud that genuinely hurt our lungs to breathe and everyone agreed was making us feel like we were sick. Mm-hmm. It was really quite crazy. Mm-hmm. Did Angelicism do the 150 fires in Quebec? <laughs> the serendipity of those fires rolling in right after this film does feel poignant and I guess you go on the historical record for at least this subscene. <laughs> There's a new event space on East Broadway and it's called Sovereign House which is a what fucking is, stupid what is ass this? fucking name. We have no affiliation <laughs> with Sovereign Capital. What? Uh-huh. So what is Sovereign Capital? Uh, Sovereign Capital is uh, it's like a crypto like urban adjacent mm crypto VC fund, whatever, that part doesn't matter. The thing is that they bought a space well, in downtown New York, correct. like in Dime Square, like in Dime Square, like right next to 169 bar. It's not just an event space, it's like the door is always hmm. open. Like I could just go there and drink for free. And So you had Praxis Week, which is a crypto startup about sovereign cities and sort of a VC-backed party-throwing entity yeah. in its practical sense. But now it sounds like something called Sovereign Capital, which sounds like it has also VC funding, at least some money, crypto money, something. They've actually bought a space, opened it up in the middle of Dime Square. What do you see like on a broader scale? Is this like crypto companies, tech companies moving to Miami because it's less woke and they can be a little more libertarian and a little more naughty oddies with the way they do things. What's going on and why are there so many like funded sort of like scene stewards, (laughs) like well-funded scene stewards in downtown? I don't know. I think that they see clout value in downtown New York and it is like an epicenter and they just are moving here. It's also I kind of think they just want to be cool. I think they just kind of want to be cool. They might just want to like hang. Party washing or something. <laughs> For me, it feels like they just want to be cool and they, they you could go to a place where you could say you're retard and... An added benefit at the end of the day of all of this is the fact that now they also get to have... New York, downtown, Dime Square, niche, micro-influencer, beautiful, sexy, hot, young women at their parties. It almost seems like quite a joke. It's something like Alessandra Blicky, who is like an amazing poster. This bit she kind of does, where it's just like this beautiful Instagram girl 
but she's posting pictures with things like mold bug books and parties with Peter Thiel money in the air. People like Dasha Nekrasova going to Sovereign House and like... Like last night's the Praxis party was followed by a no-agency party, which is yeah. a modeling agency. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah, it's yeah. like... So now, through moving into this downtown scene, which of course invites in these beautiful young micro-influencers, some of which, like Dasha again, have followings of thousands of 14 to 16-year-old girls because of the influence of Red Scare on TikTok. We're seeing this kind of trickle down in a way that is almost definitely, I think, intentional. Mm. I mean, it's cool to have parties downtown. It's cool to socialize. But at the end of the day, like, the people coming to these parties post about it online. And then these posts online get seen by people around the world who are envious because they want to, like, live in New York. Do they, though, or is it just, like, an echo chamber? Like, New York is pay to play. Like, anyone can live here. Like, (laughs) you can afford to, you know? Not 14-year-old girls who live with their parents in Montana. That's that's true. You think it's almost a deliberate plan to seed a new conservative reactionary generation among the young or something? If it is intentional, like, I understand. Even if it's not intentional, it's still, I think, happening Mm -hmm. on some level. In the end, the result will be the same. Interesting. They definitely moved here because they felt welcome. I mean, it's kind of true. There's like more leeway among like smart, cool people. There's like leeway to be whatever. And they're like, take advantage of that because the leeway goes both ways. And it's going more in their way because the other way is very annoying, right? Worrying about speech and these like micro whatever things is boring and annoying. (laughs) But I think that they are taking it too far. I really don't think it's going to last for very long Uh in like a cultural, political mm. sense. I mean, it's interesting this is happening like post-ZERP too, right? Right. Like you would almost <laughs> expect this stuff to be happening maybe just because of COVID it wasn't, but the money printers turned off and yet there's like weird spaces for dubious social capital building investment or something. I know it's interesting and strange. It does seem like it's coming from a particular group of people who are right. like at a echelon of wealth that they take a hit. They can continue to throw parties. It's not like yeah. that's off the table. Ideologically, do you think the people in the social scene going to these parties, do they actually ideologically take this stuff seriously? Are they just kind of cynical and whatever? I don't know. Or is it just like we're all headed for extinction, so this stuff is irrelevant anyways? <laughs> so I recently went to this edgy Peter Thiel right wing epic edgy like reading and Which one? The, the one the that Matthew one. yeah uh, delicious tacos this, like, delicious taco <laughs> reading or whatever and Dasha like introduces all of she just keeps coming up but Dasha introduces like all the readers and everyone's laughing at these stories that are riffing off the deaths of like homeless black people basically and the only thing I could think while watching this all unfold was like I feel like a large percent of the men in this crowd voted for Bernie in 2016. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I kept thinking about the way that some of these people listened to Chapo mm-hmm. years ago when that was a thing. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm naive. But I feel like at this point, the way we align ourselves politically, at least like in this outward facing way, is like on this trend pendulum in the same way like skinny or baggy mm-hmm. are in. And I do understand, like, why a couple years ago these people downtown started to be super, like, right-wing and edgy. And it's like, it did feel outrageous and transgressive. Like, oh my gosh, can you believe he just said that? Oh, it's so funny to say the word retarded. But the thing is, 
now in the room, everyone says retarded. Everyone says retarded. Everyone is like, oh, Trump is epic. Everyone feels that way now. And all I could think standing in this reading was, it's actually becoming quite boring. Mm. It's not transgressive. Mm -hmm. It's not anymore. Now we're just a bunch of people who live in the most expensive city in the world just saying these things. There's no ironic detachment anymore. And there's no, like, Antifa scene in New York that protests this stuff or pranks this stuff? Uh, The thing is, like, during this reading, an artist who I should know the name of threw her drink on Matthew and started yelling at him, like, calling him a racist, fascist, shut up, I can't believe you're saying this, I can't believe all of you, like, this is ridiculous. It was staged. I think it sounds staged. The big big question of the night was, was that staged or not? And then, like, kind of like I'd said earlier, I'm not sure it really matters Mm. at the end of the day whether or not it was staged because we are talking about it. There is, like... A sense of opposition, but even when it arises, all like anyone in the room can think is, oh, was that real or not? It's not meaningful. And at the end of the day, everyone just laughs. It's an opposition that may or may not be real. And its existence is there for like these people to giggle at because it finally gives them the opportunity to feel transgressive again, which they haven't been for a little Mm -hmm. while now. Interesting. Like neoliberal opposition is too silly to be taken that seriously because they're like protesting the dare and like like (laughs) disposable straws. So, I mean, it's like ideology has truly just become another, I mean, I guess online it's compressed into the same spaces, fashion or Mm. music or whatever. And it feels like just as little is at stake because Americans particularly have just seen time and time again that they really do have no agency in changing things, Mm -hmm. I guess, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why we make a crypto state in the Mediterranean. Shut up, David. (laughs) (laughs) There there is a, it does make sense why you do exit versus voice. Like voice doesn't work. And if you look at how I feel and how everybody that I know feels downtown, it's like there's no voice. There is no voice. We're smart enough to know there's there's not really so voice. So it's an exit incubator. <laughs> exit incubator, yeah. Of course, the exits all rely on other more stable states functioning so that they can receive their supplies reliably and that they can send out their garbage or whatnot. So it's exit within a certain scope. What if instead of paying a lot of money to get into something, you got to pay a lot of money to get out of something. (laughs) Network states, sovereign city states, application only, like, yeah, you're only getting there if you're, like, really rich. Or if your friends are really rich. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so I guess then it becomes a whole sycophant economy. Um, (laughs) I mean, I see a lot of scam realism in this. I don't know, it's like Brett Easton Ellis was actually writing speculative fiction, not like, (laughs) uh, he was kind of like... (laughs) It's true. He was actually writing sci-fi and the stories took place in 2022. (laughs) I mean, it's a similar level of all-pervasive cynicism it sounds like at the same time i it's all understandable i like it makes sense where it that sort sense. of right it does attitude and disposition comes from you know yeah we've just been burned my entire adult life politically 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 it's gonna be like a fire fest like <laughs> no nothing i mean i was thinking about it today though Iraq war, 2002, it was a lie. 2008, they gave all the 
Bankers bonuses, 2016, they debted Bernie. What was it? The CHOP in Seattle ended up shut down because the CHOP's own security shot and killed a black teenager, which really wasn't reported much, but that literally happened. I mean, COVID, money printer. It's really hard to actually believe in any vector of agency we're given, right? So... I get it. An American type of like liberalism. I just can't believe in that. Kidding? This is so nihilistic. <laughs> oh I actually God. cannot believe it. It's not nihilistic. It. It's realistic. Effective, longest running democracy oh my ever. God. I mean, come on. I'm sorry, <laughs> but you're being ridiculous. <laughs> it's really so sweet. patronizing. When I, like I get starry eyed and optimistic about like the state of our world. Like, shut up. You haven't had to go through anything. <laughs> It is kind of a treat, though, to find out that Forever Mag is actually like an underground liberal poetry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Forever is funded by the DNC, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, she should be. (laughs) She can get that DNC. DSA money. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Chloe, I want to ask, you're essentially like clouded in these scenes and circles downtown and these different groups on all of the political spectrum that there are on aside from the social aspect and that it's fun are there certain aspects of what's going on in new york right now that actually give you hope or make you excited for the future and what might actually hatch out of it all or are you just living life and enjoying the ride (laughs) which is totally cool if you are i just want to yeah my experience here is colored mostly by the fact that i was basically a neat at my parents' house until five months ago, (laughs) where I moved to New York on accident. I moved here because I came for New Year's Eve Discord meetup, and then I just missed my flight home, and I never (laughs) left. And I didn't go to college. I'm experiencing all of these things that people have just been doing, apparently, their entire lives for the first time. And at the end of the day, like, my view is colored by the fact that I think of myself as a humanist and an optimist. I think it's beautiful. And there's a lot of nihilism. There's a lot of dark, seedy characters. But I'm not one of these people that doesn't want to be seen near, like, Dryden or, like, Moldbug, Curtis or anything. Because it's, like, at the end of the day, like, I'm just talking to people. And, like, I think it is Beautiful. I think it is optimistic that at the end of the day, like no matter how old you get, no matter what weird political little shtick you put on to like sublimate your like childhood desires or whatever, like people want to go to these parties. People want to talk to one another. People want to like create things with their hands. And like maybe it's silly. Maybe it's like overly optimistic. Maybe it's like reducing everything to like this kind of childish mumbo jumbo. But I do kind of live day-to-day as someone who's experiencing it all for the first time. And I'm captivated by the beauty of it. I've actually been attacked for thinking it's beautiful when other people think it isn't at all. I mean, yeah, to be clear, I'm not, like, so high on my moral pedestal that I'm not partying. (laughs) (laughs) I think the, like, ironic veneration of tyrants is stupid, but I don't think it's harmful. I don't know. Like, I I go to Brooklyn sometimes. I've hung out with the DSA kids. Have you been to Brooklyn lately? Like, everyone looks like they're in Grizzly Bear. (laughs) Like, it's actually, like, frozen in time. Unbelievable. Like, I can't go. But it's, it's so cool. It's all so cool. And it is also beautiful. And it is really hopeful to me. I don't know. Like, despite being, like, 
on what people like consider like the edge of extinction, despite like a literal toxic cloud coming to rest over the city because the Gulf Stream refuses to let it leave. Uh, despite like all these people in these rooms hating each other for weird, silly reasons, because at the end of the day, they're all retarded, like online, like posters, like we all still can end up in the same room together. We all still can like have our little petty feuds and come back around. Like we're in a weird, sick on again, off again relationship with one another. Like despite the world ending, I, I don't know. At the end of the day, it's, it is beautiful. Here <laughs> Man, you're so good at this. Yeah, you're, you are really <laughs> good Well, so Madeline, <laughs> Chloe, David, thank you for this. I feel like this came full circle. I feel like I have a much better full spectrum <laughs> understanding of what's going on in New York and what some of the forces are that are creating the scene or culture. You Thank so you sweet. all so much. We really appreciate your perspective Congratulations on this. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we'll update you. Yeah, you're not taking the baby to the crypto state, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> He's going to be baby. I can already imagine the Atlantic piece. They were born in an experimental city state <laughs> 20 years later. What's going on with the Praxis babies? <laughs> like, <laughs> are they still <laughs> stateless? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Wait, will Praxis babies be born stateless or will they? Uh, it depends if the UN recognizes Praxis. Or, or they'll be like Italian or like. No, no, no. no. This is a sovereign nation. They're not, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be. Praxian? Praxian, yeah. Well, thank you all so, so, so much. much. It was really, really wonderful. Fun hanging with you. Okay, I love you guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this New Model Special Report Downtown NYC update. And thank you, Chloe, Madeline, and David for joining us. You can read Madeline Cash's review of Film 01 at spikeartmagazine.com. This conversation left us with questions. Does this phenomenon in NYC reflect a true shift in hybrid on and offline social organization? Or is it the result of savvy founders leveraging Seniors as buzzy VC bait to get funding? What does a future where scenes are the essential social unit mean for culture, politics, and the market? And what exactly do these well-funded scene seeding or scene capturing projects expect as a return? Will we see, or are we already seeing, pump and dump scenes trading in social currencies? Are the artists who helped establish certain scenes without financial motivation like angelicism wary of the presence of corporate actors? Or does corporate patronage of a scene give it the FOMO windfall it craves? Could this just be another instance of the Naughty Audis revival, like the Bloghouse parties sponsored by Sparks or Scion? And as Sparks and Scion both no longer exist, will Praxis and Sovereign meet the same end with their experiment in scene-embedded business? Or will this time be different? Expect further exploration and interrogation of Scene 3.0, only on New Models. New Models New York Scene Update Update. After this episode was aired, an Instagram user with the handle Walter Benjamin's Mom began leaving a series of bizarre comments in which she claimed to be the unnamed artist who threw a drink at the Sovereign House poetry reading. Walter Benjamin's mom is the pseudonym of Alice Astor, who describes herself as a 30-year-old working-class sex worker from Wisconsin who has been doing communist and anarchist art practices for over a decade. To Miss Astor, her drink-throwing was a sincere act of protest. But to the viewers watching at home, it was just another moment of spectacle in the hit decentralized reality show of Dime Square. 
If you appreciate new models, consider joining us at patreon.com slash new models or newmodels.substack.com. Thank you for watching. Good night.